business class. This is episode number 204 on Wisco Weekly. And to kickstart this episode, I want to start with the passage from a book by Chris Bickerton and Carlo Achetti from the book Technopopulism, The New Logic of Democratic Politics. And I'm going to start with this passage because in order to understand the full context of the conversation that my guest and I get into, it's important to understand the terminologies of populism and technocracy. And so I want to read this passage from the book, which will set a baseline to what will follow with the conversation with my guest. So from the book, populism relies on the cultivation of a direct relationship of embodiment between the populist leader and his or her electoral base, while technocracy is based on an informal relationship of trust between the technocrat and those he is supposed to govern, rooted in the assumption that the former possesses a specific competence or expertise tied to his or her personal qualities and professional qualifications. That is the difference between populism and technocracy. Now, let's get into the episode with Associate Professor of Economics at Haverford College, Carla Binder, as we discuss her paper, Technopopulism and Central Banks. We discuss another one of her papers, which talks about how gas prices are an indication of consumer sentiment. And I encourage you, business class, to refer to the episode page for links to all of these original articles so you can read them at your own discretion. So again, thank you for tuning into the show. Much love. Here is Mrs. Carla Binder. You are now tuned in to... The Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vitaite, vilkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Welcome to another episode of the show. And let me be honest with you, business class. Let me talk to you about, let me be honest with you so as to showcase some transparency, because that will be a topic that will come up in this episode. This is going to be an episode here that will be a little bit difficult. Why? My guest is a, a very big academic, and we're going to try to get into some of the technical aspects. We're going to try to get into the weeds, but also we're going to try to make this as fun and entertaining as possible, if that's possible. We're going to try, we're going to, try to make economics sensible, and, and you know, I, I want to I make economics and finance sexy, too. So we'll see if we can combine a little bit of everything here. In the effort for us to find some stability in today's economy, we kind of have to look at the changing tides of where the Federal Reserve as well as government officials are headed. And that's why today's topic is very important for us to understand. I have to tell you that I first heard about this topic probably about 20 years ago from a good friend of mine uh, named Brett Aldridge. Shout out to my good friend, Brett. And he's a bit of a conspiracy theorist. And so I thought he was crazy when he talked about this topic about 20 years ago. But then when I read my guest research paper on this topic, it made so much sense into what's going on today. So business class listeners, joining me on the show today 
is the associate professor of economics at Haverford College, Haverford College, Haverford College, Haverford College, forgive me. And that is joining me is Mrs. Carola Binder. Carola, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be here on the show. Carola, I am even more excited than you. And we'll, 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 we'll get into everything as the episode goes along, but I let, I want to get to know you a bit. This is obviously our first time getting to interact. And I will say that I've, I've probably done more research on you and everything that you've written than I've done on many other guests, you know, forgive me other guests. And I got to tell you on one hand, I loathe you. I read a lot of, I read a handful of your papers, but specifically the techno populism and central banks paper that we'll get to talk about today. I read that probably, I had to read every sentence like three or four times. And I, when I, you know, and it's like every time I was like, God, what is she saying? And after I would read it like the third or fourth time, I'm like, that makes sense. And then I go on and I go on and then I finished it. And I'm like, oh my God, she's brilliant. I love this. And, and so, you know, I, I just want to say first off that like on some, some weird way, I hope, and I hope it's okay that like, based on your writing, I kind of have this crush on you, even though we just met. And here's some other things about you that I, that I learned. You're a mother of four. That's right. How attractive is that? You're Catholic. I was born and raised Catholic, although I don't practice now. You can always come back. uh, (laughs) Your husband is a PhD research scientist. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a lucky dude. So I guess to learn about you a bit more, my question to you is if I'm sitting at the dinner table with you and your husband, what would you two be talking about? We would be telling our kids to stop interrupting and stop throwing their food. <laughs> Whenever we try to have any conversation at the dinner table, we get we get a lot of interruptions. Um, but yeah, we lately we've been talking a lot about um, grape varieties because we're we're planning to start growing grapes. Um, we we have a huge uh, garden. We already do um, basically all the vegetables that we eat for the whole year and we do raspberries and strawberries um, but we just ordered some grapes and kiwis and he's excited about experimenting with uh, whether they can whether whether they can actually grow here in Philadelphia um yeah we talk about uh well I I also homeschool the kids and so we also talk about um you know what they're learning in school try to go over like American history um the dinner table um, or we just talk about like campus politics at Haverford, um, what? or, you know, anything. <laughs> Wait, hold on here. Hold on. You're an associate professor. You do a lot of writing. I mean, you are, you are a, you know, your, your writing is very prolific, uh, in, in all the topics you've discussed from money and banking and economy and all that stuff. And yet you still homeschool your kids? I do. I mean, only one of them is actually um, really school age. She's in second grade. And then I have um, four-year-old twins and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So it's only really the the second grader um, who I really do formal homeschooling with. Um, but, yeah, I do. You realize that, uh, you know, you can you can be really efficient with homeschooling. I mean, what, what might take a whole school day um, – at a school can, can get done in 
an hour or two at home and then she has all day to just read and play. So I think it's really great. And and you're also introducing campus politics to your second grader? Oh, no, that's not really for the benefit of my second grader. That's just for, um, you know, just talking about what happens at different meetings and stuff to, to kind of fill my husband in on my day. Got it. Okay, um, that's not the conversation. For, you... Not for part of homeschool. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Okay, okay. Well, this actually then begs another question, again, in talking about you and getting to know you a little bit better. So, you know, you attended as for your undergrad, uh, undergrad uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. Right. And so, you know, I guess I'm curious, how, how was your upbringing when it comes to education? Because obviously, it's a very technical school. You write and you're very interested in a complicated subject matter such as economics and the Federal Reserve. What was education like for you growing up? Um, so I grew up in Kentucky um, with, uh, I have one brother who's a little younger than me, and we went to um, public schools there. But uh, yeah, my parents were, were great about, um, you know, putting us in music lessons and um, I was on like a math team from basically middle school onward. Um, and, you know, it was a public, it was public school, but we did like um, religious education classes weekly at our church. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've always liked math. Um, so I went to Georgia Tech thinking I'd probably become some sort of scientist, um, but it turned out I really didn't like labs. I'm not really sure why, but I just, so then I just went for it and majored in math and got into economics uh, a, a little later. I, mean, I took a little bit of econ in college, but I really got into it in graduate school. And what what is it about econ that drew you in? Well, when I was at Georgia Tech, I took an internship working at the um, Senate Budget and Evaluations Office in Georgia. So like working for the state government, and that was more um, of a, but like budget analysis kind of position, but um, it did get me interested in in policy and thinking about um, doing doing something that would use math, but would be more policy relevant. Um, and I honestly didn't know that much about economics when I applied to graduate school, but luckily it turned out okay. I ended up liking it. Um, I didn't know that I would be a macroeconomist. Um, when you the first year of an economics PhD program, you basically take all of the different core classes, um, and I really enjoyed the macro class. Um, this was 2010, so you know the the Great Recession was officially over, but it it didn't really feel over, and we were still having really unusual times as far as um, monetary policy. Um, so I think that this part of what drew me into to picking macro and, and wanting to study um, monetary policy and inflation and expectations. And parents or any mentors of yours that were involved in this subject matter at all, or are you blazing a, a new trail? Um, no, my parents are not economists. My mom, um, she, uh, she worked as an accountant and my dad, um, worked as a chemical engineer. He later um, became a, an entrepreneur. Basically, he started a, a home healthcare um, company, uh, like a home healthcare te technology company. Um, but no, um, I didn't have any real like, you know, family or personal connection to economics. It was just 
something that seemed um, interesting and seemed like I could put, you know, my my skills to good use, I guess. And the other thing that I found very impressive about you not having met you is just your writing. So you've talked to me about how you have a interest in a, just a natural ability towards math, but you also seem to be a very, very good technical writer. I mean, sometimes almost too technical, forgive me, because there were definitely some areas in, in another paper. It was your, your gas paper, which we'll talk about too. I was definitely getting lost in some of those, but how did you acquire you know, the ability to write so technical well, thank you. Um, I think part of it is that I read a lot always growing up, not not technical things, but I just read a lot of, you know, fiction. And that's part of why, I, again, why I'm homeschooling. I like the fact that my daughter then gets tons of time to um, to spend reading. Um, yeah, I don't know about really how I learned technical writing. I think it's something that you don't really always learn formally. You just have to kind of learn it by practicing and by reading a lot. Um, I do try to uh, to teach my students how to write. I, I do try to incorporate some lessons about writing into all of my classes. They um, have referred as a liberal arts college, so I have only undergraduate students and, and generally have pretty small classes. So um, I am able to like give them writing assignments and have um, few enough students that I can grade all of their writing pretty carefully. Um, so that's actually made me think more about the process of writing, right? To teach it, you have to think about it more than you would when you're just doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, your, I, I, uh, your techno-populism paper, again, it was, I started reading it. I had to put it down. I was like, this is too heavy for me. So then I was like, okay, well, I got to get ready for the, for this recording. So I started reading it and it, it's just like, I had to, I had to grind my way through it, but it was just one of those things that like, after, you know, after reading a sentence or reading a paragraph three or four times, I'm like, okay, I understand it. And I'd move on to the next one. And I literally told my wife, like my, my wife, she, you know, she's reading a book right now and she's reading, um, um, She's reading the Robert Kennedy book uh, about uh, COVID and Fauci. And and so she's like telling me these like things going on in that book. And I said, well, babe, check this out. Like, do you know about techno populism? And I'm like telling her about your paper. Cause like after I was done, I swear to God, it was like a bulb went off of my head. I'm like, this just all makes sense. And it was this grueling path to get there. But like at the end of the day, I was like, I'm so thankful that I got there. I'm so thankful I got, you know, all the all the messages and the arguments and all the facts that you presented. So, and this is why it's great to have you and to, to, to talk about this stuff, you know, so let's, let's kind of dive into this a little bit then. Yes. Yeah. The first, I mean, I'm sorry. It was so grueling. I feel like that, that actually, if I were a better writer, I could have made the same arguments and not made it so grueling. To get through. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I may disagree with that. I, I, th I think that, you know, it, it, you're all, you always have to get used to the writer's um, method and, you know, their language and, and how they structure, right? I think once I understood that, once I got that, it was easier to then follow and read everything. But I think one of the things that eventually I kind of accepted was that, and I, again, I don't know you, maybe this is already the case that everyone else knows this, you are very precise about your diction. 
And so I really then had to make sure that as I was reading your sentences, like, okay, there's a reason why these sentences are structured the way they are. And then when I started to get it, it was like, okay, things are starting to make sense. But again, you're, you, you're very precise about your language. And, and to me, that just demonstrates that you are a very good writer. I, I could never do that. Thank you. Can, can you tell yet? Like, um, do you, I mean, do you have groupies? Can I, can I be one of, can I be a groupie? <laughs> Is your husband going to get jealous that I'm a fanboy here or what? All right. Techno populism and central banks written by Carola Binder, April 29th, 2021. You wrote this for the Cato Institute. There's a passage in here, which is maybe probably the, the, the most salient piece. I know that you like to use that word a lot. And the passage goes, and the passage goes, an important point is that under technopopulism, populists do not reject technocratic expertise, but instead rely on it to translate their causes into policy. Central banks thus face pressure to use their technocratic discretion to do more to serve the people and to be directly accountable to the people rather than to elected representatives. In return for greater responsiveness, they gain even greater power and discretion. The techno-populist logic, I argue, implies that central banks will increasingly become the only game in town, both reflecting and exacerbating democratic discontent. I thought this was definitely the passage in this paper that probably could be the passage that says everything about uh, your paper and maybe is also could be the most contentious. So let's break this down a little bit. Yes. Sure. So the first sentence, an important point that is under technopopulism, populists do not reject technocratic expertise, but instead rely on it to translate their causes into policy. Why is that? Um, sure. So for a little bit of background, one thing is that this this technopopulism uh, phrase, I'm taking it from a, a book by Chris Bickerton and um, Carlo Achetti, they're political scientists, and they wrote a book about technopopulism, using that to describe um, sort of politics, mostly in Western Europe in recent years. Um, but then I was asked to write a paper uh, for a Cato Monetary Policy Conference um, about populism and central banks. And there's been a lot of talk lately about um, like the populist threat to central bank independence. And we've, we've been hearing about it since basically um, the Great Recession, that after the Great Recession, there's this wave of populism. And the idea was that this is going to be a threat to central banks. And why was it going to be a threat? Because populists and technocrats are kind of thought to be antagonistic towards each other. Right? The technocrats are these like technical experts, and then the populists want to serve the people, like the people kind of broadly defined and are anti-elitists and the technocrats are considered like the, the elites. So there's thought to be in, in this tension, right? So that would mean that, you know, the more uh, populism gains strength, the more they're going to um, kind of attack or go against the technocrats like the central banks. But what has been pointed out about techno-populism is like technocrats and populists aren't that different and they're not necessarily um, at odds with each other to that degree because 
both of them um, reject the like the um, representative democracy as a way of making decisions, right? So when you have um, technocrats, the idea is like, we're gonna let the experts decide. We're not gonna vote on this thing. We're gonna have experts decide it. When you have populists, they also say, we don't need to, to vote on this thing. Like I have the, I have the will of the people at heart. Um, whoever is the populist leader says kind of, I, um, I have, I, like I'm serving the interests of the people, but they're both rejecting like some idea of representative democracy. So techno-populism is about that, how you see that the, the populace and the technocrats sort of joining forces in a sense where, um, Populists realize that, well, if they want to get their, their policies accomplished, sometimes their best bet is to go through the technocrats. Um, and so, so Bickerton and Achetti made this point in their book, but it wasn't about central banks in particular. And I was bringing it to central banks and saying, this seems to be what's happening at the Fed and at some other central banks where you see, you know, central bankers, you think of them as like the ultimate technocrats. But really not so much anymore. They, they actually, in some ways, resemble populists. There's a lot more of a, um, an appeal to the people that they're making. They tend, have been tending to talk about um, topics that you would hear populists talk about. Um, they, there's more of an emphasis on their personalities, right? With a usual technocrat, you know, they don't have a personality. They're just this, um, they're, they're just this expert, you know, writing their numbers down. Um, but there's a lot more of an emphasis on who, you know, who is, uh, who are these leaders at the Fed and them trying to make the public know them. Um, and, and this has all been a part of, uh, or this has all gone along with the Fed getting more discretion and getting more power in the Great Recession and beyond. And I think it's like connected. So we, we haven't seen with a, a rise of populism we haven't seen the populace say, oh, take the power away from these technocrats. Why do we have these technocrats at the central bank controlling so much of the economy and society? Instead, um, you, you actually see more power going to the central banks. So I think one area that I was that I, I don't know how to think about this, but it sounds as if that a technocrat can morph into a populist and therefore transform into a techno-populist. But a populist cannot transform into a technocrat. Would that be fair? Um, I mean, or I wouldn't that really maybe, think of it is as... that maybe the wrong way to look at it? So, so Bickerton and Achetti explain that techno-populism, you shouldn't think of that as like applying to a, a person. It's not like this person is a techno-populist, but think of it as like a, a logic of the political system. Um, so uh, so it's not necessarily about like we have a technocrat and, and he's going to transform into a populist or vice versa. Um, sometimes you do like in Western Europe, there are some cases of um, of like political parties choosing some, you know, academic as their, as their leader, right? So you kind of have um, have uh, a movement, like a, a political movement being led by um, someone you would have otherwise expected to be more of a technocrat. But it's, it's not necessarily that you think of like one, one transforming into the other. I mean, it, 
It does, though, seem to be the case, though, especially at least in this paper, as it relates to central banks, though, that technocrats are morphing into populists and now, you know, using that kind of uh, techno populism organizing logic as a way to demonstrate the power of of who they are, of what they can do versus, you know, and maybe this is the 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 danger that's also lurking is that maybe the populists themselves haven't realized the ability of their influence on the technocrats. So therefore, populists themselves can also morph into these techno populists, you know, or, or to speak more bluntly, right, is like, now you now, do you have the Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warrens, the Rand Pauls, whoever, right? You have these politicians that are like, well, let's let's start to use the, you know, use our platform to shape the way that the Federal Reserve is conducting policy. Do you do you see that that um, equation happening? Um, you you always see politicians trying to influence Fed policy. That's pretty much as old as the history of the Fed um, right. in, in various ways throughout Fed history. Um, you know, usually you hear, oh, the Fed is politically independent. Um, in 1951, there was the Fed Treasury Accord, and that's when the Fed got its independence. Um, but it's really not as straightforward as that. So even after the Fed gained its independence from Treasury in 1951, you still had, um, for example, like President Nixon um, putting a lot of pressure on Chairman Arthur Burns and um, and this just continued president after president and Fed chair after Fed chair, Congress after Congress. Um, so there's always always politicians trying to pressure the Fed and that can come in uh, different forms. It can um, it can be more subtle or it can be um, you know President Trump tweeting about uh, the Fed on Twitter, right? He he um, he he tweeted a lot of really critical things about the Fed and the Fed chair. Um, to try to influence the Fed. Um, and this is not just in the US, this is around the world. Um, I have some other, another research paper called Political Pressure on Central Banks, where I um, create a data set about uh, political pressure in, um, on 118 different central banks around the world. And it is, it is a pretty universal thing. Um, it's not, you know, only in some particular type of country. It's it's in all sorts of types of countries that you have politicians pressuring central banks, and it's almost always for like looser monetary policy. Right. Um, because that's usually good for elections, right? You you get um, the unemployment rate down, you get some inflation, but in the short run that the inflation is not a problem and it helps the politicians win the election. Um, and that's why central banks like got their independence in the first place. They can then counter that inflationary bias if they have this independence from the political process. Um, but that just making them legally independent doesn't, doesn't free them from the, from the pressures from the politicians. Um, and sometimes the, the, the pressure, like you kind of alluded to, it can take um, different forms. Like if it, you know, you mentioned, I think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, um, I don't know what they in individually have have said or done, but a lot of times politicians might pressure the Fed to um, 
get involved in other sorts of policy areas that it wouldn't otherwise be like um, pressure to, um, you know, regulate um, like that in the in the types of regulations that they would impose that that they might encourage um, like green investments and not discourage yeah, non green I mean, investments. I mean, I think that is kind of the the looming. Um theme that will that will be kind of uh you know prevailing over the feds you know is the political pressure from the sanders and the warrens and the progressive left of focusing fed policy on climate change and you could already you know for me it started to make sense when i saw the Lael Lael brainerd hearing and when she was being questioned i mean it was it was all the republicans on the right that were basically trying to connect how you know, get her to commit to ensure that she will not use discretion on her part to influence um, investments into climate change and essentially, you know, let the market do that. And of course, she was saying that she doesn't plan to do so, but that was definitely the theme of, of, of her hearing. And so, you know, again, that is the political pressure that is, that's being tied to these these technocrats. But as you say in your paper here, again, it's it's with techno populism. It's not that the populists reject the technocrats, but they're all they are trying to work hand in hand with one another. You you go on to say the the second statement that you state that you say here: central banks thus face pressure to use their technocratic discretion to do more to serve the people and to be directly accountable to the people rather to rather than to elected representatives. I'm sorry, real quick, you know, you're so perfect. I have to point out an error that I think I, I found in your work, and that is it says and to be directly accountability to the people. Oh, uh, you got it. Yep. Did I get it? It should have said accountable, not accountability. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Do, do I get an A? <laughs> sure. I, I get an A by coercion. All right. So central banks thus face face pressure to use their technocratic discretion to do more to serve the people and to be directly accountable to the people rather than to elective representatives. So how are central banks able to, you know, communicate this pressure uh, or, you know, to communicate their discretion so that they are quote unquote for the people? Sure. So um, just in case like listeners don't really know much about the Fed, um, the Fed gets its dual mandate from Congress. So Congress gives it this dual mandate, which is um, maximum employment and price stability. Um, and then the Fed, like I said, they're they're independent, but they are accountable to Congress for their dual mandate. Um, so, you know, long ago, the Fed was, um, you said we would use the, the word transparency. So long ago, the Fed was not very transparent. Um, including to Congress, like they, they didn't um, make that much information about their decision making known to Congress. Um, but the there was like a transparency revolution in central banking, where central banks gradually became more and more transparent. And the first steps were transparency to Congress. So um, you'll get the semi-annual monetary report that the, the Fed chair will give to Congress and they, they will have hearings and and, um, you know, they've started like publishing their the minutes of their FOMC meetings and things like that. Um, so this is all just making this information available to the public. But um, to so that like Congress can see that the Fed is satisfying its dual mandate. And then 
Congress is accountable to the rest of us who elect them, right? So if we, the people, don't like the way the economy is running, we don't we don't agree with the dual mandate, or we don't think that that what the Fed um, is doing actually is satisfying the dual mandate. We can hold Congress accountable, right? We can, um, and so Congress is supposed to kind of discipline, not discipline, but Congress kind of is supposed to make sure that the Fed is doing what Congress told the Fed to do. And then we're supposed to um, vote on Congress. It's um, this checks and balances of keeping Congress in check, which keeps the Fed in check, in which we keep mm -hmm. Congress in check, and the cycle continues. Yeah, and that's how, like, you know, we have this independent Fed, but we're still a democracy. Um, so we couldn't just have an independent Fed and then not have them be accountable. That wouldn't really be democratically legitimate. Um, so the Fed, uh, they, they have a communication strategy. All central banks have communication strategies and their communication strategies have really evolved over the past couple of decades and even more over just the past couple of years as they try to figure out, okay, how can we communicate with Congress and with the financial markets and with just households in general? And um, they've done a lot of research on the, on like how their communication works. And a lot of just academics, including me, have researched how this kind of communication works. So, um, you know, if the Fed, uh, say, does forward guidance, does it, do you see any evidence that the financial markets like heard about it in the, of course, in the financial markets, they do. How do they respond to it? What are its, what are its um, for the, for the general public, for just like households, people who aren't even doing much investing. Um, there's less evidence that they're even paying attention to the Fed at all. And a lot of people just, um, you know, they just like have no real reason to want to pay attention to the Fed. They might once in a while see if the Fed like makes the front page of the news, then maybe they see something about the Fed. But I've actually run some, you know, some surveys online and found that a lot of people don't know who the Fed chair is. They don't know that the Fed does monetary policy. They don't know that the Fed has an inflation target or what its inflation target is. Um, can, can you give me give me a sense of what uh, the demographics of that survey? Who 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 were the respondents? So in the surveys I've done, um, I've done them on Amazon Mechanical Turk. Have you heard of that? It's like it's it's Amazon's, but um, Amazon has this platform online where you can choose to be a, a worker or an employer, and you um, post like uh, you post tasks that people can do to get a small payment. And so sometimes people will use it for like um, digitizing documents or something like that. But uh, researchers have started using it to run surveys. So if you have a short survey, say, um, you know, click this link, take my survey, you'll get $2. And they take like a five minute survey. And so the demographics, um, they're, they're not perfectly representative, of course, because, um, you know, people aren't all like equally likely to go work on this platform, but they're reasonably um, good. I mean, it's better than just like doing a, a survey of uh, the undergrads in your class, which mm -hmm. some researchers might otherwise have to do. So it's better than doing a convenient sample. Um, and you can ask people for their demographics. So you can you can see that you're getting something um, close okay. to the population distribution. Okay. So I, I've done a couple of surveys like that where I'll just ask people, um, 
maybe I'll give them three or four choices and say which one of these is the Fed chair um, or, you know, what's the Fed's inflation target, things like that, or ask them if they've heard news about the Fed lately. And the, the general um, result is that most of the time people don't really pay that much attention to the Fed. And that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. Um, so if, um, if the Fed is doing its job perfectly and inflation is really low and stable, um, then you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to um, you know, waste your time reading about the Fed if that's not interesting to you. You can spend your time on other things. Um, in like countries where inflation is a lot higher and more volatile, people do seem to know more about like monetary policy and to have a better idea of what inflation has been lately because they kind of have to pay more attention to it. If they don't, they're gonna make uh, kind of worse mistakes in their um, financial decisions. So um, yeah, so, so there's this kind of thing with Fed communication with the public where it'd probably be good if people knew what the Fed's inflation target was, um, but it would also, it would be good if also inflation was like basically held at its target and nobody needed to really worry about it. Um, but the Fed had, they would like to be able to really communicate with people in a really nuanced way so that in times like the Great Recession, when we're at, um, they've cut the Fed funds rate all the way to zero, they still want, you know, easier monetary policy, but they can't do it the usual way by cutting the Fed funds rate. So the idea is like, well, if we can promise people that interest rates are going to be low, like longer in the future, and that we're going to let inflation get higher in the future, then we can actually reduce real interest rates now. So we can do expansionary monetary policy just by talking, if we can influence people's expectations. So this is That's this is the strategy kind of behind this level of transparency into the Fed. This is, yeah, this is like the idea of using transparency, using communication as a policy tool. But you can use, tra transparency has a couple of purposes. And one is just preserve their accountability and democratic legitimacy. One is use it as an actual policy tool where if you reduce inflation expectations for a given nominal interest rate, that reduces the real interest rate. And that is supposed to go get people to go invest more and consume more today and get you out of a recession. That's what it's like um, very hard, it seems, for the Fed to do. The Fed has a hard time um, getting everyone to hear and believe them when they say, um, when they say in 2008 or 2009 or, or so, um, yeah, like we're gonna get um, inflation up in the future, so you should go spin now. Um, it it doesn't seem like people even hear them say that, or they don't understand what it means, or they don't um, believe them. Maybe um, so. The Fed really, you know, started. We're going to do a better job of communicating with households, with the public. Um, the other reason is we just want them to trust us more, right? And so they how, think. How, if, how are they communicating with the households? Oh, they, I mean, central banks got into social media, they're on Twitter, um, they're on Facebook, but also they, you know, there's all, they're doing speeches. And I think the idea is that some of these speeches do get covered um, in the popular press. Um, oh, they absolutely they, do. They do educational resources. So um, different of the regional feds have like different resources for 
you know, if you're a middle school teacher, you can download this thing about the Fed and give it to your students. Um, they, they, they have various kinds of like conferences and things that are supposed to get um, media attention and they have press offices. So they're, they're really trying to do what, you know, presidents have done for a long time, which is have this press team that lets you um, get uh, some control over the media agenda. The president is really good at that. Influencing you... the media's agenda, but central banks are only like more recently saying, "Oh, we need to be able to do this too," and it turns out it's pretty hard. When you say recently, like within the, since the pandemic or prior to the pandemic? Oh no, prior. I mean, this is this has been going on for years, but I think it's ramped up like around the Great Recession when we were at the zero lower bound for so long. The zero lower bound meaning like they've cut interest rates to zero. Mm-hmm. So they're constrained from doing their their usual thing, which would be to like cut rates further. So they that gave them more of an impetus to try to um, do things by communicating. And also the other reason is that you know the Great Depression was bad, the financial crisis was bad. People um, lost some of their trust in institutions and were probably you know, I mean the the Fed you know. <laughs> We didn't get another Great Depression, so in that sense, the Fed did a good job. But people were still like um, angry about the the depression, the recession that we did have, and so I think central banks wanted to be able to communicate with the public more to say, um, you know, to get them to understand like what it was they were doing um, and believe them that they were going to like improve the economy. Do you do you? Would you attribute some of the current woes in in our monetary policy that we're still feeling the residual effects of it from the 2008 crisis? So I think, yeah, in, in part, the 2008 crisis, um, it, it did expand like what central banks did. They took on a lot um, more, like there was these emergency lending facilities that the Fed started, for example, that uh, many of them were continued um, during the COVID pandemic. Um, there was also the issue that like um, interest rates had been at zero until like around 2015. The Fed had just kind of been gradually raising interest rates and they were still only two point something. So there wasn't a lot of room for them to to cut interest rates uh, right at the start of the the pandemic. So that was one kind of lingering effect. Um, I'm not sure if that was really what you're Uh, asking now. I mean, I I guess, you know, so I had this discussion with uh, Alex Pollack, uh, who's a senior fellow at the Mises Institute, and something that he brought to light to me was the fact that the Fed uh, since 2006 has been buying up mortgage-backed securities in which now their balance sheet is upwards of $2 trillion, which makes them the largest holder of mortgage-backed securities, um, you know, more so than any other bank. And so it, it just, it would seem to me then that like the effects of Fed policy from the financial crisis are definitely still exacerbating what's going on today and again, I just wonder how that factors into this techno-populism where you have Fed officials, the technocrats, that are, you know, they're continuing to make their way more into our economy. And now that they're able to play this communication strategy game, 
like now they're really you know i've i've had this thought for the last year how jerome powell is more powerful than joe biden and it definitely seems like this is going this is going to continue to gain more traction especially as you're saying that the feds now are playing this communication game which is exactly how you get to your local households now yeah and in, i mean in the great recession they did show us like how powerful a central bank can be people who maybe some people who hadn't um paid attention to central banks before suddenly realized wow they have they have a lot of tools at their disposal um whether we think they should have them at their disposal or not they do seem to and that um that opens the door for more pressure for them to use them right once they they kind of did everything they could you know did all these things in the great recession and people know they can they can do so much right and they can do it quickly because they don't have to get it um you know voted on right they can they can act pretty quickly in a in a crisis which um which is good you need you know you need to be able to act quickly in a crisis it means that um it's like the easiest way to get things through so if you want to get things through you can you can go through the central bank Okay, so let's go to your last statement um, in this um, in this passage here. So you you write the techno populist logic. I argue implies that central banks will increasingly become the only game in town, both reflecting and exacerbating democratic discontent. So let's define some things now. First off, how what is democratic discontent? And then how do central banks reflect that? And how do central banks exacerbate that? So democratic discontent, um, I was referring to a sense that a lot of people have that they're just not being represented in politics. Um, This goes back to your representative democracy. Right. And I think it has a lot to do with the the two-party system we have in the U.S. where um, a lot of people uh, might might feel that um, you know, neither party represents exactly their interests and that, um, that, you know, they might feel like Congress is too dysfunctional, um, politics are too dysfunctional, um, I'm not being heard, um, my, my desires are not being met, I feel like my liberties are being encroached upon. It, whatever it is, people feel like um, the system of democracy we have is not working for them. And um, and I think populists can feed off of that, right? Because that's what that's part of what drives populism is, um, you know, you have different different people in society with different interests, and and if you can have a way to get those interests represented, then you can have like a flourishing representative democracy. But if you if you can't, then populists will tend to come in and and sort of try to make it about well, there's a will of the people, the people are are good and then there's these bad elites um, that are against the people and you know i'm going to come in here and be um, for the people but that's just kind of treating the people like this homogenous um, mass that don't have these different interests mm-hmm. right and um and technocrats it's it's more like i know what's best for the people because i have this expertise they don't have um so you know the technocratic appeal is an appeal to expertise. It's appeal to like knowing best. So the people might not vote for this because they don't know um, they don't know well enough to vote for this. 
and there's a lot of policies where it is like I think appropriate to leave them to technocrats but the risk is when that I guess goes too far when you have technocrats making really political decisions decisions that are not just about you know there's some knowledge problem and this expert is going to solve it but but there's some some moral problem or some political problem or some problem of who is like deserving of what those are the sorts of problems that you want people to vote on not to say oh the experts um you know the experts will know best here in, the, in a kind of like patronizing way yeah okay so this whole idea is with democratic discontent is you could have on one hand this these populists well techno populists that they can you know feed into the democratic discontent by nominating someone who can uh what I was trying to say is like the reason we have so much of this techno populism in the first place is because of the of the democratic discontent. Like that's what I mean by it reflects it. Got it. I see. Um, I see. Okay. So if everybody felt like, oh, we have this really well functioning Congress and executive branch and a great, you know, um, uh, a, this great democracy here, we feel feel like it's fair. There wouldn't have been such a push to have central banks do so much uh -huh. um, because we could have felt like it was more feasible to get things done through, um, you know, through our democratic institutions. Um, it, it's because of democratic discontent that we are, um, that this, that there's been like this techno populism growing. And so let me then just kind of tie this t topic up of techno, techno populism. And again, you kind of, you cite two movements and you, you kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but in the paper, you cited the Podemos movement in Spain and Italy's five star movement as kind of examples of this tech, techno populism um, that is starting to seep into, I guess, into the United States culture and society. And you also then write techno populism is better understood as an organizing logic of political competition characterized by a set of incentives and constraints that result in contemporary political actors increasingly adopting both populist and technocratic forms of discourse and modes of political organization at the expense of more substantive ideological orientations. So it's it's a very heavy statement, but I think that does aptly characterize what this kind of movement to techno-populism would look like. And I think that was just so that people know, I think that was Bickerton and Achetti, or maybe just Bickerton. That was a, a quote from either yes, their yes, book correct. or their prayer. Correct. Um, yeah, but that was how they that was how they um, summarized techno-populism, and it is a really good summary. So, okay, now let's get to another paper here of yours. All right, we're going to dive into the weeds a little bit more, and then we'll we'll bring some levity into the to the conversation here. Okay, because it's pretty okay. heavy. So you had another paper here called Stuck in the 70s, Gas Prices and Consumer Sentiment, written January 23rd, 2020. And in here, you write that consumers become more pessimistic about national economic conditions when local gas prices rise. Ta tell me how you arrived at this conclusion. Sure. And I should shout out to my co-author on that, Christos Macridis, who is, uh, he's, 
affiliated with a, a lot of different institutions, including Arizona State, but he's great. And one of his affiliations is that he's um, is with um, Gallup, which is a, basically a survey data company. You've probably heard of Gallup polls. Mm -hmm. And so this paper um, relies on Gallup survey data. And the Gallup survey, um, what, well, one of their surveys asks people about their sentiment about the economy. So it's basically like on a scale of, I think it's one to seven or something. How good do you think the economy is doing? How good do you think it'll be? Um, and they have a daily poll of this. So they ask people, they ask a different set of people every single day, this question about how they think the economy is doing. And um, within that survey, you can also see where that person lives, like what state they live in. And so we also got data about gas prices at daily frequency in different states. And since we had this, we were able to try to, um, well, what economists are interested in always is like causal effects. So we, we were trying to find not just correlation, but the, the causation, you know, between gas prices and consumer sentiment. And the, having this really higher frequency data helps with that. Um, but the idea, um, the idea is that like gas prices are the word I love to use, salient. People notice them a lot. Um, even if you don't drive, you see them because they're like big and um, all over the, you know, on signs as you go down the road. Um, so people notice gas prices maybe more than they notice other prices. Um, if they do buy gas, they, you know, buy it pretty frequently and are, you know, feeling that in their pocketbook. So that gas prices might play, you know, a, a pretty big role in people's sentiment about the economy. And yeah, we do show that, that that's the case. When gas prices rise, um, people become more pessimistic. Um, it, it's not like, like a given that that would be the case um, because gas prices don't always rise when there's like a recession or going to be a recession. They can, they can rise because global demand is really strong. So if you're really thinking about it like that, you might say, oh, um, gas prices are rising oh, global demand is rising, so the economy is going to be great, right? You could do that kind of logic in your head, but most people don't do that. They, they tend to think gas prices are high. Oh, that's bad. And what we then further showed is that people who um, are of the age that they would have, like, remembered the 1970s and early 80s, um, they have, like, an even stronger association of gas price rising with bad times. So it's like, if you live through that time when there were high gas prices at the same time as a recession, then you have this association in your mind where you see high gas prices and you worry, you know, the economy is doing bad. Younger people are, you know, less likely to automatically associate high gas prices with um, bad times. Okay. So regardless then the conclusion came down to the fact that consumers become more pessimistic about national economic conditions when local gas prices rise so you know again even though the the young people don't think of it and view it that way i could still make a case though that you know for a lot of for a lot of individuals who are in the middle class i think this is a logical way to think about it i mean I, 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 when I saw this, this particular statement written in this paper, I actually disagreed with it at first, but then as I thought about it more and more, I was, I was kind of thinking that, well, I guess myself 
and many other of my friends in which we're, you know, in the same kind of economic class, while we are not really affected by a $5 gas, at least here in California, there's definitely a general sense of pessimism about the economy. So then, in effect, this statement actually does become true. So, okay, now let's, so I, I wanted to bring that up because I want to now take this, I want to graduate this here, okay? And I'm known to conflate things. So let me just premise, let me just <laughs> premise that. If indeed consumers are more pessimistic about the economy as a result of having, you know, higher gas prices. And so in effect, that would also translate to if you lowered gas prices, then that could indeed boost consumer confidence. It could boost investor confidence. It could do a number of things. If the Fed, Federal Reserve is adopting these techno-populism kind of principles of asserting themselves to, you know, play the populist game, demonstrate that they're for the people, wouldn't it go, wouldn't it suggest then that it would be in the best interest of our U.S. economy for the Federal Reserve to adopt policies to lower local gas prices? Well, it's not totally clear what the Fed could do to lower um, local gas prices. Um, part of the reason we started this project is because, um, you know, I mentioned the Fed has an inflation target and a lot of central banks have an inflation target, but it's not totally clear what inflation rate would be like the best target for them to have. So the Fed targets um, PCE inflation, the headline PCE inflation. So that's the personal consumption expenditures inflation rate. And it's headline, meaning it does include food and energy prices. But a, a lot of other central banks include some sort of core inflation measure that excludes energy prices. And so um, it seems like if people are really quite sensitive to gas prices, then maybe that um, you know does make it a better idea to, to target some measure that includes those um, rather than targeting one that excludes them. Um, they still do focus on core measures of inflation a lot as like maybe clear signals of underlying inflation trends. Um, yeah, as far as what the, I mean, what the Fed could do to bring down gas prices, they, I don't think they can target particular prices like that. They target like the price level more broadly. Um, well, they, they can't target it, but I, I guess there's an, there's, I have an understanding which may not be correct, but I don't think I'm that far off. And that is the way that I'm coming to understand this relationship between the Federal Reserve and its connection then to the local economy is, again, going back to that Leo, Leo Brainerd hearing, oftentimes- are you, Sorry, are you thinking of the Sarah Raskin hearing, the one the other day? No, no, this was a few weeks ago. Okay. This was when uh, Brainerd was uh, um, affirmed as the vice president. Okay. Sarah Raskin was also asked a lot of questions about um, like bank regulation and climate issues. So I thought well, I was yeah. Well, that okay. One. Okay. So this this goes hand in hand. So the way that I'm understanding how this is all coming together is that you have the Federal Reserve that is really in cahoots with the big four banks. B of A, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, and Citi. 
And it's through working with them and through, you know, essentially influencing their lending policies that then those big four banks start to work with your more local and regional banks to which those local and regional banks, those, those are now the institutions that would say, hey, you small business, you want to apply for this loan. Well, what is it that you're looking to do? Oh, you're looking to just, you know, dig, dig into the ground and, and get more crude oil. Yeah, we'll give you, you want a million dollars. We're going to give you 200,000. Oh, you company are looking to do solar. We'll give you 5 million. And even though you only asked for 2.5, this is how I'm coming to understand how the Federal Reserve is trickling its way into local businesses and then and so again in effect you suggested that you're not sure how the federal reserve could influence energy policy i'm thinking that they actually can how it's by working with those big four banks and then how that kind of trickles to the local and regional banks and look carol to be perfectly honest I don't know if I'm right in this. This is this is only my theory as I'm hearing all this information come in. I don't know if that's how it actually works. So yeah, I'm not t- totally sure how it actually works either. But I think through their through their regulation and supervision, um, that yeah, that would be how the Fed would you know influence energy policy yeah. um, would be through supervision and regulation. But if anything, that that would probably, like what you were describing, would probably raise gas prices, right? Um, if they're making it, and, well, you know. Yeah, yeah, correct. That that would raise prices. But if you if 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 the if the feds did take on again more of a policy that's working with those big four and saying, hey, let's loosen the restrictions, let's let's invest more, provide more lending to you know companies involved in the oil industry. Which again, not like they need more subsidies, but at this or 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 money. But at the same time, if indeed the statement is true that consumers become more pessimistic about national economic conditions when local gas prices rise, then so it goes that consumers would be more optimistic about national economic conditions when local gas prices decrease. So, why not the Fed take on a policy to incentivize more? energy and specifically on the on the on the at the local gas price level well setting aside whether it's like legal for them to do it or not but what they want to um i think though that yeah that like the priority of um of like preventing climate change they would they would put that higher than like let's get gas prices down to make consumers happy where i would see the like techno populist influence on gas prices is not um is not through the fed but through like uh price controls right you, there was a call for price controls just the other day in, in a washington post op-ed saying and it was actually feed, again feeding into this de- democratic discontent it said let's um let's destigmatize price controls let's have more democratic control over the price level that was what they were calling it democratic to put in price controls but it's really like not democratic at all it's let's um Let's decide that we, the market doesn't know best. We, whoever these price controllers are going to be, we know best that, say, it's gas prices need to be lower. So we're going to impose that um, on the market. That's where I think um, it would really come in. If, you know, if policymakers decided, okay, what we need is lower gas prices. Again, I'm not sure that they would decide that because they might say, we don't want lower gas prices because then people will drive more. And that's 
that's bad for the environment. But if they decided what we really need to lower gas prices, I think that's the way they would go is um, price some controls. sort of some sort of yeah price controls regulation. I, I mean, are, are, would would we enter a period of dystopia going to a price control methodology? Yeah, we don't want to go to price controls. We really don't want to go to price controls. It's not going to promote democracy. It's going to promote authoritarianism. Absolutely. Um, and the whole how, like, how, how, do, how does somebody how, how does I guess give give me a case make the academic case how somebody could support price controls. Oh, part of it is let's look at um, there are price controls in World War II and they actually kept um, inflation down while they were in place. Of course, um, they they had a lot of other bad effects and inflation was high when they were removed. Um, and we're not in a war right now. Like people like to say, oh, COVID is a war. We're in, we're in a state of war right now, but we're not in a, it's not a, we're not in World War II right now. It's not a wartime economy. Um, the other case would be like, uh, we need to stop a wage price spiral, right? That the reason prices are rising is prices rise. So then people demand higher wages. So then the prices rise so then people demand higher wages. And if only we just stop the prices rising, we can just stop the whole thing. Um, I think that's just like kind of overestimating the ability of like regulators I and mean, of technocrats to know like what prices should be and, and ignoring the enormous increase in the administrative state and the surveillance state that would come with that. In World War II, there were, you know, there was this, there were tons of, you know, thousands and thousands of government employees and of volunteers to be price regulators, meaning you're going around and you're surveilling and making sure nobody's breaking the rules and the, the court system, you know, the courts get bogged up with all these cases for people violating the price control legislation. Um, and Congress gets uh, just constantly lobbied by different industries to um, make looser price controls on their industry. So um, that's not good for democracy, right? Burden the courts, um, increase the power of lobbyists, uh, give so much power to technocrats when there's not even the usual, like the usual reason for giving power to technocrats is they have some sort of expertise that you don't otherwise have. But they're certainly not. They certainly don't have the information that the market has, right? They're not going to beat beat the market um, in that in that sense. So they're they're not really they're they're not really experts at what the price should be. So there's there's no reason to to hugely expand the number of um, bureaucrats um, so that they can monitor all the prices in the in the economy. Um, and, you know, you could say, well, it doesn't have to be all the prices, just gas prices. But then again, if you're using like economic history as an example, um, the price controls never worked until they were like really uniformly imposed. And it just seemed to be impossible to impose like price control, specific price controls, even like, oh, we'll have price controls, but not on agriculture. Well, then agricultural prices start shooting up so hot, so fast that you still have high inflation. Um, so it seems infeasible to do like, um, kind of targeted price controls and, um, it, it's not going to, it's not going to work and it's going to be bad for democracy too. I mean, it's like, as you're describing this, it, it kind of takes me back to prohibition, right? And it's like, you could ban the sale of alcohol, 
And, you know, back in those days, right, they didn't really have the surveillance state like we would have now. So that, so back then that opened up a, a huge black market. Well, now with the surveillance state, you maybe the black market doesn't flourish. So effectively, the only revolt that could happen then is really, you know, some sort of tyranny, right? You, you would have a revolt of the people that basically is like, no, these price controls you said would stay at just oil, but now it's in farming. Now it's on, you know, other forms of energy. Now it's on internet. Now it's on everything. And again, with the surveillance state, the only way to really break free is just an absolute revolt. Did I conflate too much on that one? No, that's good. I mean, we, yeah, we, let's steer clear of price controls. <laughs> okay. So, well, th so this was some, this was some heavy stuff here, Carola. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we, we talked about transparency of the Fed. So let me give you, let's play some additional conspiracy here. So the Fed has definitely been way more involved in our lives over the last decade and certainly over the last two years since the pandemic, right? Like you could almost say that in specific regards to the, the capital markets, that many investors aren't even investing in companies anymore. They're rather investing or they're, they're trading the Fed, as I've heard this term. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the, you know, once before we the, the market could rely on just waiting for legislation to come down the pipeline to see how the market reacts now it's like every other month there's a fed meeting in which that is in and of itself causing some volatility in the market and the reason why the fed is doing this is to become more transparent but i would argue that the fed is not fully transparent yet why because we may have audio transcriptions of their meetings and a dot plot and all these other things right you ever wonder why they don't do video recordings? Oh, well, so for the meeting um, transcripts, I mean, they used to not be become publicly available at all. Yeah, right. And then now I think it's with a five-year delay or something along those lines, five-year delay maybe. And then with the dot plots, we, um, we see the dots. So we see like each dot represents some policymaker's projection but their names are not attached. So we don't know, you know, who made what dots until I think a 10 year delay you do. And why like these releases with the delay, it's supposed to be a compromise between you want the transparency, but you also don't want to sort of stifle discussion in the moment. So if, if people are too worried um, to really speak their mind freely in the meetings, because they are worried about how it'll be like viewed by the public. Um, so I think that, and I think that is like, legit where you're, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be uh, behaving exactly the same in a like live televised meeting as you would in a meeting where you say, okay, five or 10 years from now, people can know what you said. That's, um, it, that's a, that's a fair point. It's a fair point. I also think there's a, there's a, it's a generational thing. I can see that I, I I'm going to presume that we are of the same age, I, I think. I think that at some point, you know, when there is our generation that comprises most of the board of governors that video being on video is not going to be so much of an issue because this is how we were raised right but this does kind of in my eyes bring up this idea of like these clandestine kinds of organizations right these very secretive organizations where of course you'll get the audio transcription it's like uh you know powell how many rate hikes do you think 
should be in 2022 and what points should they be at? That's right. You know, it's like tap your nose and that is 10 basis points, right? One, two, three. There's three basis points right there. That's 30 points. And everyone kind of votes that way. I mean... I never actually thought about that, that whether there was any uh, any secret visuals going on, but... Um... I totally think there is. I totally think there is. I, Jerome Powell just sweats every time he gets some of these questions in the press conferences, and I feel like he knows way more, and the only reason why he's not disclosing it is because everyone in the meetings knows of the visual cues, and nobody else in the public does. So it's like he knows already where the interest rate hikes are going. He just can't disclose that as a, as a way to maintain, you know, some market, uh, I don't know, privilege, if you will. To his credit, he did start doing the press conferences after every meeting, right? Before that, they were only every other meeting. And before that, there were no press conferences. So yeah. the fact that he'll, he'll do them at all is actually a pretty big, um, you know, a pretty big credit in terms of transparency well and i i think it will it only goes to show that at some point maybe they will do the video recordings of the meeting right maybe again, so yeah this, this Are they're going to be live tweeting the meetings <laughs> yeah totally right i mean again that's because it, it was interesting to read your paper and like it it's so applicable about today's times this whole techno populism and and the power of the federal reserve and kind of what they're demonstrating and how they are now going directly to the public you know, I think in, in some of your slides, which business class listeners, I'll, I'll add links on the episode page, but like you kind of compared and contrast websites, right, of whatever, 10, 20 years ago of, of these central bank websites versus what they are now. And, you know, before it was like very, it was very dry. It was very, it was a lot of charts. It was a lot of language that a lot of people didn't understand why, because they were the technocrats. And then all of a sudden you show now on these websites of today, how it's like, how was the Fed accommodating equity in your area? How is the Fed has supplied, uh, you know, the the people of color with with X amount of I don't know whatever you know lending you know they're they're supporting these kinds of lending initiatives, and it's a total different messaging than what it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, and huge pictures of the leaders to, and again, that's the populist influence. It's like here's the like. Half the half the website, half the homepage will be a, a face shot of one of the um, of one of the policymakers. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's let's pivot for a couple couple seconds here. Um, I have a couple a few more th- couple more things actually I want to talk to you about. First thing, you have introduced me to a whole nother world. And before I even break into this world, I would like to get maybe some advice, your assessment. Tell me about hashtag econ twitter oh that's just any any economists who are on twitter um or anyone who is interested in economics who's on twitter sometimes uses that that hashtag um i mean i i joined twitter pretty early on like when i was a grad student um and it's fun it's like a a way to see what other people are working on and talking about and what newspaper articles are getting a lot of economists to debate them. So a lot of times people use the hashtag if it's like, say, a, somebody's just joined Twitter and they're like an economics grad student and they want to make sure like people, you know, find them, they'll they'll say like, hi, hashtag econ Twitter. And um, yeah, uh, I mean. Is, is there a general guiding principle of participating in hashtag econ Twitter? 
No, I mean, people are in econ Twitter, even if they're not like using the hashtag. I mean, I, re I rarely use the hashtag. It's just like sort of how all the economists on Twitter kind of refer to the group of economists on Twitter. I mean, I, I, I definitely would not characterize myself as an economist in the same way you would, but I've, I've, I've perused econ Twitter, hashtag econ Twitter, and I found that I think a lot of my humor would not land properly yeah. <laughs> in the group. And so I'm trying to, you know, I, I'd like to participate, but it also seems as if there's some like guiding rules that, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you join a Facebook group, right? And then like these groups have rules on what you can and can't do. I feel like there should be something for econ Twitter because it definitely seems to be a little bit more prim and proper than uh than sometimes what the you know the the lost catholic schoolboy in me has uh, has become there's catholic twitter too and those are my two twitters yeah. is it really is hashtag catholic twitter well again i don't know if people actually use the hashtag but like you start following there's like some some basically celebrity priests and and celebrity uh catholic moms and stuff who just tweet a lot and um yeah i follow them i don't really like actively participate i just I follow Catholic Twitter, but I actively participate in econ Twitter. That's funny. Uh, what are some of the things that you're going to be working on over the next one to two years? Over the next one to two years? Um, well, I have been working on a, a paper with RuPaul Kamdar about um, inflation expectations and inflation. So how do those two, how are they related? Like how um, does inflation affect inflation expectations and vice versa? Um, I've been working with Christina Skinner, who is a legal scholar at, um, at Wharton, and we, we've written two papers so far, one about the legitimacy of the Federal Reserve, some of the things we've been talking about today, and one about the, the research function of the Federal Reserve, so the kinds of things that the Federal Reserve banks are researching and, and how their research agendas have, have changed. Um, that work is really closely related to the, the technopopulism paper. Um, uh, I mean, my research agenda is always kind of evolving. I mean, I'd be interested in doing some more economic history uh, projects. Um, I'm probably going to keep working on things related to how consumers form their expectations. Um, I've been working on something about um, forecasting done by central banks. So got a lot of things to, you know, to possibly do. Do you have a... An agenda? An agenda? You, like a research agenda? Well, no, like more of an agenda of when you do get into these writings and the work that you do, like, is there an agenda on your end? Um, not, not really. I mean, when I, I started out, my, I guess, agenda was um, to try to understand more about how consumers form their inflation expectations. And so a lot of my um, the you know my first few research projects mostly had to do with that, but that it just kept like getting me to branch out into other things because then it sort of raised the question that got me thinking more about like how central banks communicate. Um, so I did some papers on that, and then um, that got me more and more into the, the politics of it. So like writing about the political pressures on central banks, um, and yeah, I wouldn't say that I have like a real um, agenda other than um, try to um, like not, not an agenda as far as like promote a particular policy 
Um, but uh, just try to understand monetary policy better to make it more effective and understand its like role in society more and its role in politics more. Um, and do you, do you, do you ever consider who you're writing to as a way to either provide some greater clarity or education? Well, most of what I've written has been just like peer reviewed economics journal articles. So for those, my audience mm -hmm. mostly is other academics, but also people at central banks who are more or less like academic, like the researchers at central banks are a lot like academics. Um, so often it's like just, uh, you know, it might be speaking to a somewhat technical issue or just to, a, it has a place in an already existing literature where there's some question in the literature that's being debated and I'm, you know, weighing in on, on that with some more evidence. The techno-populism paper, that was a little different because I was like written for a, a Cato conference. Um, and so I didn't do any, you know, I wasn't running regressions in there. I wasn't doing some data collection, data analysis. So it was a little different because it was more of like giving my opinion about things. Um, and it, I think it was a little bit more of like, here are some of my policy suggestions rather than here's like my description of how something works. Um, so I, I probably do, you know, do more of that as I like, you know, get further into my career. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm basically an academic. I'm basically, basically going to keep trying to, um, to publish in the journals and work with new co-authors and things like that. What would be the penultimate accomplishment for Carola Binder? The penultimate accomplishment? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't really know. I, a lot of, I, I do spend a lot of my like effort on teaching and, um, I feel like, uh, like being able to really influence some, some students to think a lot more critically about the economy and about government's role in the economy. Um, I don't know that there's like a really concrete like accomplishment associated with it, but I think that, um, you know, a lot of times students aren't really ready for like, or not, they're, they're not ready, but a lot of times students feel like, well, there's these good things, so the government should do them because they're good. But I want them to think more about like, well, what would it actually mean to have, you know, to have the government do these things? What would, what would the um, other consequences would be? Or, um, you know, why don't we want price controls even though we like low prices? Just getting students to think more um, about that kind of thing and, uh, and to be like more open-minded is something I, I really hope I can do. Well, okay. I mean, I, I wish you all the best. I, I wish you success and nothing less. I didn't even realize actually how long we've been going. I, I, there's one more question I'd like to ask if you have time. Sure. Just, do you still have time? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this is a question that I asked of all my guests and it kind of deals with decision-making. So you're a brainiac, your husband's a brainiac. Um, sometimes that doesn't always have to translate to being good with money, but uh, of course you're an, also an economist. So I'm sure there's, you have to be somewhat good at money. So I'm curious on your end. How 
could you describe for me the art and science of your decision-making process when it comes to financial decisions? Well, you already said the key, which is that my husband is a brainiac and he's the one who does, uh, uh, yeah, you basically got it, is that being an economist doesn't necessarily mean I'm great with like finances and investment. And he's actually the one who's more inclined towards that. Uh, one part of our philosophy is probably just the penny saved is a penny earned. So we're pretty frugal. You know, we have we have four kids, so we do a lot of um, our shopping at wholesale. You know, we have these enormous bulk bags of of flour and oats and things, and um, and uh, yeah. So so being frugal, um, you know, doing just like maximizing what we can put into our four hundred one k or four hundred three b. I don't think is I have there, any is real. There, is there a particular like percentage that you would put away in your 401k or 403b? Is it like 10% of the paycheck, 20%? Um, we put whatever is like the maximum amount you're allowed to put. But again, he does it, so I don't know what that percentage is. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, we try to do it in a way that like kind of maximize our tax advantage. You know, we put money in a dependent care account that then we can use to pay our babysitter with, you know, so that it's like tax advantage, things like that, but nothing fancy. I mean, I'm not like day trading or anything. It's just, um, no, but I, you, you do bring you do bring up something that, you know, I guess, let me, let me articulate it for myself and you tell me if this is correct. I think a key point in making financial decisions is this whole idea of saving, right? And that's the whole idea of a penny earned is a penny or a penny saved is a penny earned. And, but oftentimes saving is looked at as so cliche and so simple that it's, again, as I said earlier, it's not like sexy enough for someone to like look forward to want to do, but you do touch upon something, which is I think very important. And that is kind of like the, the methods in which you do save is you do have varying accounts that you're distributing money into. And I think sometimes that gets lost with people because a lot of times people think, oh, I got to save. Well, okay, I just won't spend a lot of money and hence I'm saving it into my account. But then next month, boom, I, you know, I saved all this money. Let me go spend it. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't really kind of get you closer to financial goals. What gets you closer is kind of what you're doing. 401ks, 403bs, dependent accounts, you know, all these different types of methods where you're distributing money. Right. Is, is that is that a fair characterization then of, of what you're saying? Yeah. And we do kind of try to make it fun. I mean, it is sort of like a game to us of like getting the best deals on all our stuff we have to buy. And yeah, I mean, you you talked about different Facebook groups with their different language. And I'm in this like buy nothing Facebook group. I don't know if you've heard of these, but if I you know. have four kids, you have to be in them. It's like basically people in your local community who are just um, giving away or asking for stuff for free and it's not exchange it's just people you know uh, sometimes i'll be who needs barter. you know size it's not barter you don't trade oh you, you don't just trade. give it it's like a gift economy oh i see so um so it's great for kids because kids are always like going through so many clothes and you you know you don't have room to store them all but you also don't want to always be buying them so i'll um give away kids clothes get kids clothes and toys and stuff like that and honestly i basically never have to buy like toys or clothes for my kids. I just am always giving them away and getting them on this, this group. And it's fun. Really? It's like, 
it gives me a destination to go on my walk. Like I'm going to go to this house that's giving, you know, giving me a dress for my daughter or something, or I'm going to go to this other house and give them these pants. Um, and so these are local Facebook groups and all they're really local. Yeah. You have to like put in your address and it's like going to be within a mile or so of you. Wow. Very cool. So it's supposed to like let you get to know your neighbors and things like that. Wow. That's very cool. I've never heard of that concept before, but I love it. So, uh, well, Carola, thank you so much for your time and thank you for, for hanging out with me and talking about all this stuff. And I know it gets really deep in the weeds, but you certainly have done the work, um, to bring more clarity, uh, to people like myself, uh, who are trying to understand where is the future of our economy going and hence where can I make some hedges and where can my listeners make some hedges? So thank you. I, I will continue to follow your work. I'm looking forward. Well, maybe I'm not looking forward to your other papers, but <laughs> I, I will certainly keep an eye out for them. Um, and, uh, you know, business class listeners, I'll put uh, links to some of Carol's research papers and how you could follow her. Uh, Carola, anything more from you? Um, no, thanks again for having me. It was a great time. Business class listeners, as we end every episode, cheers, prost, lachren, kipis, nastravi, salu, kampai, mobru, tutsits, gambe, yamas, nastrovie, vo, salute, and saudi to the customer experience. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is part of the podcast channel, Not Your Father's Economy, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Economy, where you can receive bonus episodes, ad-free episodes that are intended to give you actionable insight to help you professionally and personally. Become a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Podcast for just $8.49 a month or $94 for the year, and you can cancel anytime. Also, please consider giving Wisco Weekly a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in.